My name's Hugh Strawn. Uh, I'm the professor of the history of war um, in this university. Um, and welcome to the latest in the Humanitas uh, lecture series. Um, the series, for those of you who don't know, is a programme of visiting professorships, both here and in Cambridge, uh, which are intended to bring leading scholars and practitioners to both universities uh, to address major themes in the arts, social sciences and humanities. Um, created by Lord Weidenfeld, whom we are told is on his way, stuck in traffic. Um, those of you who have been trying to get from London today will know that there are no trains, um, so getting from here, uh, getting from London to here is complicated. Uh, this is a series created by Lord Weidenfeld, um, and the programme is managed um, and funded by the Institute uh, for Strategic Dialogue with the support of a series of generous benefactors in collaboration with the Humanities Division in this university. This particular chair uh, has been made possible by the general, su general support of both uh, the Blavatnik Family Foundation and the Reconati Kaplan Foundation. Um, we couldn't really have done much better, I have to say, uh, in choosing our inaugural lecture for the series. Uh, general Mike Hayden uh, was commissioned into the United States Air Force in 1969. Uh, he was a career intelligence officer. Uh, 1996-97, uh, he was commander of the Air Intelligence Agency. And in 1999, he was appointed director of the National Security Agency, a post he held in 2000, until 2005. Um, you may remember after the 9-11 attacks um, that the US intelligence services were reorganized um, in 2004. Um, and the post of Director of National Intelligence was created uh, and General Hayden became Deputy Director of National Intelligence in 2005. The following year, still as a serving officer, uh, he became Director of uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, uh, by then, he was a four-star general. Uh, reti he retired from the United States Air Force in 2005 um, and he retired from the CIA in 2009. Uh, these days, uh, he is a principal of the Chertoff Group and a distinguished visiting professor in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University. Uh, we couldn't really have anybody who has uh, so encompassed, it seems to me, some of the challenges which the United States has faced since the 9-11 attacks uh, not just in the field of intelligence, but also, of course, more widely in public policy. Uh, chal challenges which have been external, self-evidently, uh, which have been organisational for the intelligence services, and also, of course, have had domestic repercussions, not least in the last few months, in terms of the issues of accountability. So it's a great pleasure to uh, ask General Mike Hayden to deliver the first of his two lectures in this series uh, under the title of My Government, My Security and Me.
Well, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to be with you here this evening. Um, I, I think the, the um, order of March here is I get to talk for a bit, and then we enter into a generalized scrum about 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 the uh, subject, and I and I look forward to the exchange and and hearing your views. But again, the order of March is I get to go first. So. Um, it has certainly been an exciting eight months for both NSA and, frankly, for GCHQ as well. I mean, Keith Alexander and Ian Loban must, uh, you know, wake with trepidation every morning and go out to their front stoop and pick up the morning newspaper and read the daily accusation coming, coming at, at their agencies. I mean, we've had the types of uh, Mr. Snowden himself, Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras, Mark Gelman, uh, Washington Post, back at home. Der Spiegel uh, is cranking out a, a routine series of articles. It's actually, it actually has its own rhythm. It's about every seven to ten days a, a new article comes out, and, you know, and it puts NSA, GCHQ, Her Majesty's government, and my government back home on their back foot as they try to explain what it was they've been doing. So these people are important, and, and frankly, they raise important issues. But let me begin with the, with the hypothesis that they are flotsam and jetsam on a very turbulent sea. Not an important flotsam and jetsam. But the turbulence of the sea is what's important, and what's even more important is what's causing the turbulence in the sea. And what's causing the turbulence is the movement of several really important tectonic plates. And I really want to talk to you a bit, before we're done here this evening, about those tectonics. Because whatever you th think or don't think, believe or don't believe of the latest Greenwald or Gelman or Poitras story, those tectonic plates are still going to be there. And free peoples are going to have to decide how it is they want their governments and their societies to respond to, to those tectonic plates. Now, I freely admit that what these writers and others like them have done have accelerated a necessary and frankly inevitable discussion about these tectonics. But I, you're going to have to give me a few minutes to, to point out to you from, from, from my point of view how frankly they, they may have misshaped the discussion as well. Because if we're going to do this right, we're going to have to base it on realities not on imaginations or allegations. So let me just point out a few things that, that might tug back some of the more extreme stories that are out there. I mean, let me begin with Mr. Snowden himself. I recall when he made that first videotape, I believe when he was in Hong Kong, and, and he very dramatically says, and I sitting at my computer, if I had the address, could tap the email of the President of the United States. Now, that's probably clear to you that that violates the laws of the United States. It's probably not clear to you that that also violates the laws of physics. Okay. Mr. Snowden could not do that. But it added a certain sense of drama. I, I, I actually had a chance to watch his Christmas greeting to the United Kingdom, uh, in which he said something about a child born today will never have a private thought, which I from my point of view, smacks a little bit of overstatement. Um, Bart Gilman is the uh, Washington Post uh, writer 
who broke what we call the 702 story. Uh, 702 is a, uh, a section of our FISA Amendment Act, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. I will try desperately to avoid acronyms as we go through here. But it's the adjustment to our FISA Act in the late second Bush administration, 2008, okay, that allows NSA, under the supervision of a court, to go to the major email providers, most of which are headquartered in the United States, Hotmail, Gmail, and so on, and say, I need all the stuff, inbound, outbound, sent, not sent, draft, from that account. But when the story came out, since Gelman only had the slides from NSA, when, when the story came out, it was NSA has direct access to the servers at Microsoft, Google, and so on. Most of my countrymen still believe the original version of the story. Uh, Gelman's story was changed multiple times on the Washington Post website. I said changed, not corrected, because if it had been corrected, they would have told you it was changed. But they didn't. They just updated the story and drew back the accusation. Now look, very good people, both here and in the United States, may still think, I don't want them going to Google with or without a court supervision to pull emails off of servers. I understand that. But it's quite a different matter when the popular impression is, you know, NSA's in their free range picking out what they want. Um, recent story, this one from Glenn Greenwald, had to do with Angry Birds. Remember that? Yeah, I'm just not long ago. Uh, apparently, Angry Birds sucks the brain out of your iPhone and, and, and sends it back to the Angry Birds starship where they apparently package it and sell it for, for commercial gain. And, and the story was that NSA and GCHQ, they mentioned them specifically, is, is grabbing those packets going back to the Angry Birds starship. And since it's pulling the brains out of cell phones that may very much be of interest to British and American security, they, they were harvesting what was coming by. In other words, they were taking information from legitimate intelligence targets and pulling information out that would, I would hope, keep you and Americans safe. Uh, the story, however, came out that since there were 1.5 billion people who have downloaded Angry Birds, NSA and GCHQ were now grabbing the brains out of 1.5 billion smartphones uh, around the world. I was on Fox News. Um, Y'all know Fox, a little right of center back home. Um, <laughs> I was on Fox News two days before Christmas, and I've forgotten the story, but it was, it, 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 it was, it was breathless in, in a whole series of American newspapers about NSA and GCHQ uh, on fiber optic cables around the world and pulling in a gajillion bits a day and, and, and so on. And the, the, the reporter, John Roberts, is there and doing this and they're doing that and they're doing that. So General, how sh what, what, what should Americans think about this? And I responded, well, they should think they ought to get something for spending $55 billion a year on their intelligence establishment. Okay. In other words, the story was portrayed as this great danger and hype when in reality it was NSA and GCHQ doing pretty much what they were told to do and what I think most of you would expect them to do. Look, I don't want to quibble over how accurate this story or that story is. I just want to, I just want to put a point out here early. Don't believe everything. 
right? And facts really matter. Um, I'd also say that even if all these stories were written in an entirely factual manner, manner with, with, the, with the calmest reasoning and the judicious use of adverbs, okay, even there we might have a problem. Because what you're getting in the public press, and, and frankly, I, I probably read it with slightly different eyes than you do, because I've, I've got some background and can kind of read between the lines, oh, I think I know what they're talking about here, that sort of thing. You realize that you've come into a movie theater late, right? I mean, you realize that you've come in to this movie late in the last reel. And, and, and you're, you're trying to pick out goodness and badness, villains and heroes, protagonists and antagonists, based upon what you're seeing in the last reel without benefit of what may have gone on before. So, so let me ask you for a few minutes to allow me to take you back to reel one. Okay? What's, what's really going on out there? What's Ian Loban done at Cheltenham and Keith Alexander over at Fort Meade? What, what are they really trying to do? I, uh, I worked on the National Security Council staff for Bush 41. Uh, my boss on that staff was Brent Scowcroft. Um, Brent's been National Security Advisor twice. He was advisor for Bush 41. He was also advisor for President Ford. And we've maintained, obviously he's a mentor to me, we've maintained contact. Um, he wrote an article about 18 months ago for the Atlantic Council. And I'm going to summarize this now, and they're going to be my words, not his, but I've talked with him. And I, this is an accurate reflection of what he was describing. Okay? What he said was, when I did my thing, all the things I fretted about on the board pretty much were nation states. And, and the way I moved pieces around was pretty much through what you and I would call today hard power. For those of you not familiar with the term, a short definition, hard power. Masses of men in metal at the right place at the right time. If we didn't like you, the threat of masses and if we liked you, the promise of masses and men in metal. Okay? So nation states were on the board, hard power. And Brent makes the point, neither of those statements are as true as they were when, when he was National Security Advisor. He points out that, that he was the advisor in the West Wing at the height of Ford and the back end of Bush 41, the Industrial Age. Okay. And he, he suggests that most things in the, in the Industrial Age seem to strengthen the nation state. Okay. Um, I, I say this to American audiences, I don't know how closely analogous the British experience is. But I point out that I'm old enough to remember, back in the industrial age, when making a phone call was such a complex undertaking, you had to trust it to a government or a government-controlled monopoly. Okay. Um, we broke up our phone companies in the back end of the industrial age, and everyone's delighted. I mean, no one wants to reach into their pocket in North America, pull out their iPhone, and have to believe that the success or failure of the upcoming call is dependent upon the folks who put the Health and Human Services website together. Okay. <laughs> Brent's point was that in the industrial age, state power was enhanced by the broader circumstances, be they geopolitical or economic or commercial. I mentioned to American audiences, we think of the Republican Party today. And, and we, we, we remember back to Lincoln and 
you know, the primary tenet was the question of slavery. But there were actually two pillars to the Republican Party when it was formed. One was slavery. The other one was the government building the necessary infrastructure for American industrial development. It's the Republican Party that built the railroads, or facilitated the building of railroads and other elements of, of infrastructure. Um, communism is bad in just about every dimension. It's a, certainly a bad theory of history. It's an even worse theory of government. But it is a marginally workable theory for mass industrialization under state direction. The failure is we're no longer in an industrial age, and you see what happens. Brent emphasizes that and says we're now, we're now in an information age, post-industrial, where we're all wired, we're all interconnected. And, and Brent's <coughs> emphasis is that very interconnectedness has pushed empowerment down into the hands of individuals. I mean, again, I'm old enough to remember one phone plan, one system, pay your, pay your bill. Now, we're all shopping for phones and phone plans. Um, I'm old enough to remember that I had to get in the car, drive to a building, and talk to a human being to get my money. Hardly any of us do that. I mean, it pushes power down. We're much more empowered. So are people who will us harm. I'm, again, old enough to remember that I lost no sleep as a professional intelligence officer over a religious fanatic in a cave in the Hindu Kush. The last 13 years, I've lost a lot of sleep because of that. And so we've entered a world in, in which our primary security problems are not the product of state power. Our primary security problems are actually the byproduct of state weakness or state failure. If, if, I mean, if you look at the map of terrorism today, where's Al-Qaeda thriving? It's thriving where there aren't governments. Okay. But Brent's point is, our national security structure, I'll use the American experience, 1947 National Security Act, created CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Department of Defense, the National Security Council, and the United States Air Force. We, Americans, you can judge whether or not how much it applies to, to Great Britain, we are hardwired from 1947 to deal with state power. And now we are, we are attempting to take that hardwired national security structure and bend it over that way to deal with threats emanating from state weakness. Let me tell you what I mean. We, we Americans believe we're at war with Al-Qaeda, and it's a global war. I understand there are differences of opinion on that, but we believe that. War with Al-Qaeda, combat with the enemy, killed the enemy. Unmanned aerial vehicles, predators and reapers, conducting targeted killings outside of internationally agreed theaters of conflict. In a war, you get to capture the enemy and hold them for the duration of the conflict. Guantanamo. In a war, you intercept the enemy's communications. Janine and I spent Saturday at, up, up at Bletchley. You know, Enigma, Purple, Battle of Midway. Intercept the enemy's communications. Everything Edward Snowden has revealed for the last eight months. So, so number one, 
first thing you got to get in the first reel is, you know, this is not a question of the forces of darkness versus the forces of light. There could be serious questions by the time we get to reel three, all right? But these are good people trying to adjust to a new kind of threat. So threats are different. Second thing that's very different is technology. Okay? Um, so, before I got to NSA, I didn't get to NSA until 1999. Let's go back. Let's go back to the 80s. Let's go back to the 70s. All right? um, NSA is attempting to intercept Soviet microwave hops out of Strategic Rocket Forces headquarters in Moscow, going up over the Ural Mountains, going out to ICBM fields, either in Central Asia or in the Soviet Far East. All right? GCHQ was a teammate in that. You know, we were trying to ride those circuits to pick up interesting words, like launch. There isn't a civil libertarian alive who would raise his little finger over that. All right? Isolated network, enemy communications, existential threat. Go for it, NSA, GCHQ. The 21st century equivalent of that are Gmails and Hotmails from terrorists, proliferators, narco traffickers, money launderers, and the like, coexisting with your emails on the same international global web. And so if you want GCHQ to do what it did for you in the 70s, which is get the communications of the things that most threaten you, they will invariably be bumping in to your email. There is no way around that. Third thing, technology, things change. Um, when I became director of NSA in 1999, we were overwhelmed by the volume of modern communications. I mean, if you, if you, you look at any statistics, I mean, it's, it's just going like that in terms of all of the, I mean, just think of your, oh, this is a fairly young audience, the older folks. Think of your own pattern of communication. You know, back, back home, you know, you didn't make a long distance call until it was Sunday night after six o'clock, right? Because now you think, hey, I think of nothing picking up my phone and, calling my office back in DC from here. All right? So the, the, the volume is, is massive. Well, if you're sitting there as a signals intelligence agency and trying to work, you know, for the longest time we thought volume was our enemy. How were we going to find that, 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 that one signal, the one that you wanted us to get and we really wanted to get in this growing ocean of data? And about 99, 2000, um, we finally decided we are no longer going to stand there like that against this tsunami of communications growth. We're going to turn around and swim. We're going to turn around and ride that wave of volume. Okay. Let me tell you the Laura Poitras, Glenn Greenwald, Bart Gelman word for what I just told you. The collection of bulk data. There is no other way for your signals intelligence organization to deal with volume other than to absorb the bulk data and then to make sense of the bulk rather than treating the bulk as an enemy. It's an American analog here, but it, it'll work. I was up at AT&T headquarters in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, when I was director of NSA. They were showing the pattern of life for their network. 
and they were showing the pattern of activity on an average Sunday, which obviously is much lower than a weekday because you got no business calls. These are all personal calls. So you, you kind of got kind of a bottom-dragging level of activity throughout the day. Then at 6 o'clock Eastern time, ching, 6 o'clock Central time, ching, people going on because I can talk to grandma or mom or dad or brother and sister for a much reduced rate. There you go. That's Sunday. And they said, now here's another day. A little unusual. It was a Sunday. They told us it was a Sunday. And it, rather than bo bottom dragging for, for most of the day, it, it was actually, I mean, it wasn't a business day heavy, but it, it was reasonably heavy going, going along during the day. Till about 6 Eastern time, then the four fell. There's nobody making no calls. Till about 9.30, 10 o'clock Eastern time. Then, choom! You all know what day that is, right? Yeah, Super Bowl Sunday. Okay. By the way, AT&T said they, can predict, they, they could tell you who the winner is, too, <laughs> by, by the curve of that spike at the end. Because if it goes like this, the underdog won. Okay. This last year, a dog of a game, that thing would have gone like that about halftime. <laughs> and all it means is the favorite one. Anyway, that's, that's gaining operational information from the mass of data which again, we opted to do, and that's why GCHQ does bulk collection, which is a scary word. Because back home, we do bulk collection of ourselves. I mean, we've got American phone bills in this gajillion record database. One, one final change in technology, too. There used to, you know, the uh, World Wide Web has ended geography. You know that, right? <coughs> I mean, it's one single, unitary, global, ubiquitous web. So I got a really bad man in Pakistan sending a Gmail to another very bad man in Yemen. That Gmail is sitting on a server on the west coast of the United States. That's the only thing American about that Gmail. But prior to that amendment I gave you here in 2008 in the FISA Amendment Act, prior to that amendment, prior to that amendment, we treated that email as if it were protected by the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. We actually gave that server U.S. personhood. And that 702 program I alluded to was our attempt to overtake that. Th that's just one example. The, the broad point I want to make is geography doesn't have the same meaning in modern communications that it used to have. And your society, and certainly mine, used to get comfortable by saying, you intel guys, you work outside the gate. You law enforcement folks, you work inside the gate. And it was a very convenient thing. It actually worked pretty well until inside the gate and outside the gate began to have less and less meaning. So there's a different kind of threat, sub-state. You really need very detailed kind of information. Different kind of technology out there. There's one additional tectonic that's moving. Okay? And, and that's cultural. That's you and me and my countrymen and your, your countrymen. And when I was director of, of CIA, that comes as you said, that came later. When I was director of CIA, I had an external advisory board really prominent Americans, you'd recognize them. We don't publish their names out of privacy. It's not secret, it's just private. But I got the permission <coughs> to use one of my advisor's names, and it's Carly Fiorina, 
formerly of Hewlett Packard, unsuccessful candidate for Senate uh, a couple years ago. Um, I gave the advisory board hard problems, okay? like um, how's my IT at CIA? By the way, they told me, you have great IT. You're paying about three times as much as you ought to pay for it, but it's really good. Okay? Um, I gave another subcommittee the, the challenge of recruiting. By law in the United States, we must recruit to look like America. By operational need at CIA, we need to recruit to look like America's enemies. So how do we do that? But those were the easy questions. I gave Carly and her subcommittee the tough question. And here, here it is. Will America, and by extension, you guys too, will America be able to conduct espionage in the future inside a broader political culture that every day demands more transparency and more public accountability from every aspect of national life? So Carly and her team went away. They did their, they did their study. Came back about four or five months later. Said, Mike, we think we've got an answer for you. I walked across the hall into the conference room of the, of the CIA director and I said, okay, Carly, will America be able to conduct espionage in the future inside a political culture every day demands more transparency and more public accountability from national life? And Carly looked me in the eye and said, we have concluded that it's uncertain. We're not sure. Which for free peoples who have relied on espionage to protect them is a very important answer. The um, most controversial, and I want to talk like an American here for a minute, I'm sorry, but the most controversial Ameri American NSA programs at home have to do with 215, that's the metadata that we take in from the phone companies every day. All right, and then, okay. Um, that metadata program has been authorized by two presidents. By the way, two, you may have noticed, somewhat different presidents. Two presidents, both chambers of our Congress by bipartisan majorities twice, and overseen by the FISA court. Okay. In the American constitutional system about competing, co-equal, separate branches of power, I got the president, I got the Congress, I got the court. That is the constitutional trifecta. Okay. That is as good as it gets. And my countrymen are now saying, you know, a non-trivial chunk of my countrymen are now saying, doesn't count, big guy. You didn't ask me. And, and, and we are there right now debating whether or not these programs truly had consent of the governed, even though I maintain we are not ancient Athens. We, we are not a direct democracy. We are a representative democracy. Most amazingly, you know the strongest supporters of these programs in the United States right now is not President Obama. The strongest supporter are the two oversight committees in the Congress, which is where you would you know, naturally expect the tension to be between an overreaching executive, perhaps, and a legislature that feels its perquisites are being, being stepped on. But in this case, the Congress. So those are the tectonics. Oh, yeah, no, wait, 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 wait I got to add. One more. So I got, this, I got this cultural scrum inside the United States. Okay? And I, I don't know where it ends up. I mean, I, I'm serious. Because, you know, espionage does rely a bit on secrecy. Okay? It's, 
When I was director of NSA, I was fond of saying, look, NSA needs only two things to work. It needs to be powerful, and it needs to be secretive. And we exist inside a political culture that frankly just trusts only two things, power and secrecy. If we've got a scrum internally, we've got another one between ourselves and not so much you all, between ourselves and the Continentals. I mean, we, we really do. There, there is a, an amazingly sharp difference of views about this. Look, some of this may actually be fact-based and, and cause-related to the espionage. Other of it may, may be a little bit of theater, all right? But I was in Germany last weekend, weekend before last, at the Munich Security Conference. I actually think the German reaction is overblown, and I now firmly believe the German reaction is absolutely genuine. Okay? So, so what's, what's causing this? Well, I... You know, we've been kind of going separate ways on some topics here. And you all be the judge of your political culture, but you're kind of in between, you know, kind of jump ball on issues as to whether you're European or Atlantic in terms of your approach. From the American point of view, I'm going to be very candid with you. Privacy is what you get with the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Period. Are you or are you not protected by the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizure? For the Europeans, and I'm not saying who's right or wrong, for the Europeans, they have, a, they have a deeper understanding that privacy is an inherent universal human right and therefore must, must be respected and is not a product of any nation's sovereignty. Now, I've, I've, overdrawn, I've overdrawn it, all right? There's actually more common ground than I've said, but there's some ground that's not common either. We've got this sharp distinction. So, according to these press accounts, we may or may not have been listening to Angela Merkel's cell phone, which has caused a, a disturbance in the force between ourselves and, and our German friends. When Barack Obama was a senator and was running for president, you hardly got a picture of the man without his Blackberry. He, he ran his campaign from his, from his Blackberry. And now he gets elected. And the permanent government, folks like me, begin to come in and have a chat with the president-elect. And, and one of the things, thank you, one of the things we tell him is, hey, you got to get rid of that. And he says, you know, I carried Ohio. I mean, <laughs> okay. I'm going to be the um, president of the United States. He actually said on CNBC, they will have to pull it out of my hand. Those of you who visited the United States, that sounds like one of those Second Amendment bumper stickers about guns that you see. <laughs> but, but this one happened to be about his BlackBerry. So, so we took the BlackBerry for a couple of days and we just borrow it. And we put some enhanced security uh, things inside the BlackBerry. The backstory to what I just told you is that the American security services were telling the soon-to-be most powerful man in what is probably still the most powerful nation on earth, that in his national capital, that if he used his cell phone, his emails and his phone calls would be read and listened to by multiple intelligence services. And we didn't, you know, kind of rend our garments or claim more outrage. We just said that's the way it is. Okay. So we do have a divergence, not just within our society, but between our society and our European friends. By the way, shame on us. 
Not that we may or may not have been listening to the Chancellor. Shame on us that we couldn't keep it a secret. <laughs> because we did indeed put a good friend, that's both the Chancellor and the Federal Republic, in a very embarrassing position. And so I've told my German friends, hey, ne next move is ours. We did this. We put you in a bad spot. We've got to do, we've got to do stuff about this. Okay? So back to the tectonics. All right? Back to the fundamental things. It's a different kind of threat. You've got technology that's changed the landscape, and you've got cultural things that are <coughs> speeding through and affecting practically everything. So, so where are we? Right? What, how, do, how do we address these issues? Well, the first thing I'd suggest to you is that, um, you know, it's like a recovering alcoholic here. First thing, admit you got a problem. Recognize these as issues. Do not believe anyone who tells you it is a false choice between our values and our security. By the way, our pre my president said that in his first inaugural. Okay. First of all, security is a value. And we make trade-offs between and among our values all the time. So this choice between security and our values is not a false choice. It's a tough choice. And it requires mature discussion and mature decision-making by, by free peoples. By the way, the president, the president has a new way of talking about this. I, I just gave you the quote from the first inaugural. After the Snowden leaks become public, the, um, the president is out in California at the Annenberg estate, about ready to meet with Xi Jinping, the president of China. And they do a press op on affordable care, okay? But they plant one question on Snowden. And the president said, I'll take one question. <laughs> Hand goes up, yes, and calls on the person so designated, asks about Snowden. And the president gives a very tight, very well-reasoned answer, answer not read, you know, coming out extemporaneously. I mean, really spot on. And in the middle of that answer, um, he says, look, you got to make choices. You can't have 100% privacy and 100% security all the time. You, you have got to decide. And that's what I'm suggesting to you, that these are real choices that, that we're, we're going, we're going to, to have to make. Um, let me tell you where I think we are. We're, we're, we Americans are in this thing. Um, president made a speech about two weeks ago on this program, right? I mean, he had, he had a commission and they reported to him and he came back and, and talked about things. Um, I would divide that speech into thirds. The first third of the speech by the president is the most robust description of a dangerous world and of necessary intelligence activities that the president has given in his administration. My, my thought was if he'd have been given that speech for the last seven months, he wouldn't have to give the rest of this speech. But he did talk about the rest of this. I mean, he, he then addressed other matters. On the domestic stuff, okay? On the domestic stuff, the president said, we're still going to collect the metadata. We're still going to do bulk collection. Okay, all right. I'll talk to Congress. Maybe I'll let somebody else hold it. And okay, before we query the data, I'll, I'll get a judge to check off on it. But fundamentally, he said, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. 
on foreign questions. Okay? He said, uh, we're going to stop collecting on many, they actually used the word dozens, uh, we're going to stop collecting on dozens of foreign leaders. Okay? And then, if you read the speech in its entirety, and then read the white paper that the White House put out at the same time, the whole sentence is, we're going to stop collecting on dozens of foreign leaders until we want to. And, I'm, and it, I mean, it's better language than I just used. I mean, it, it talks about when we have compelling national security needs and, and, and so on. But, but fundamentally, it's, you know, if we need to, we're going to do it. With regard to uh, collection against non-U.S. persons, if you recall his, his um, panel recommended we extend Fourth Amendment protections to non-U.S. persons. The president rejected it. What he said was, we're going to retain and disseminate information about non-U.S. persons. You, you realize, all you in the room who are British citizens, I mean, you kind of tuck up under the U.S. person rules, right? I mean, based upon Bletchley Park and more than half a century of this. So we're really talking about non-English speaking democracy folks. Um, we're going to treat those other folks like Americans when it comes to how long we retain their data and how we disseminate their data. Which frankly means we don't hold U.S. or foreign data longer than we need it and we don't disseminate U.S. or foreign data unless it has intelligence value. In other words, what the president was doing was making policy what was practiced. And he made no mention of not collecting. You know, you collect, retain, disseminate. He did retain, disseminate. He didn't do collect. So I, I guess what I'm saying is this president, who most people view as being quite different than his predecessor, doubled down on a program begun under his predecessor. And he gave the American intelligence community a pretty big box with, within which to work. Now look, there, there, there are going to be changes. There, there are. And not all of them are cosmetic and some of them are going to be burdensome and they're going to add checks and balances. I mean, the, the, the president is essentially trading some restraint, some, some oversight, in order to keep on doing fundamentally what he's been doing. I, I can't, I mean, we're among friends. I, I just can't say it any more clearly than that. And, and he's doing it because of what I tried to describe for you here earlier about the tectonic plates. It's a different kind of threat. It's a different enemy. They communicate in different ways. Technology is all different. This is the best idea we've come up with yet to deal with those unrelenting, uncompromising realities. It's, it's caused some consternation, um, like I said, here in Europe. Um, maybe not here in Europe, but there in Europe. Um, more than here in Great Britain. I, I think there were expectations that were different of President Obama uh, than President Bush. Um, recall he got the uh, Nobel Peace Prize a couple of months into his administration. I flippantly say for attendance, but um, he really got it because he wasn't George Bush. And if you recall his um, 
his Nobel ceremony. He, um, he, he went to Oslo, and I saw the camera angle, like, like if I'm where the president is, and you're all, you're all the, the, the Nobel committee, the, the camera's over my shoulder, and I got the back of my president, and I'm seeing the whole Nobel committee, which to my eye looks like every one of them had just been tweeted that their dog had been run over by a bus. Because there were long, somber faces, because the President of the United States receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, because he wasn't George Bush, was lecturing the Europeans on just war theory and how he had a responsibility to, to defend the United States. Um, Der Spiegel had a, a wonderful quote from a German, deeply felt, and then and, and deeply felt it's important. He, um, something along the lines of, um, for the longest time we thought it was Bush, that there were two Americas. Now we know. There's just one America. So that's where we are right now in this debate. I fully admit we can change. We may reconsider some of the things I've suggested to. I fully admit that we could be wrong on any of these in terms of that right balance between values and security, between privacy and, and safety. I just ask you to consider the possibility that we could be right and that this is a necessary path that most modern democracies will take as they try to deal with a new kind of threat, with new technologies, in a new kind of political culture. Well, that would have teed it up, eh? <laughs>